Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All your love, all your hate, all your memory, all your pain. It was the same thing. Cookie? Not a cookie. It was all the same dream. A dream that had you inside a locked room. That dream about being a person. Mr. McConaughey, Emma wants to go home. Cookie? Someone once told me, time is a flat circle. (gasps) Cookie is flat circle. No more beer. Cookie! Everything we've ever done or will do, we're going to do over and over and over again. These two puppets, they're going to be in this room again and again and again. Forever. We're puppets. Me no see them. It's like in this universe we process time linearly, forward. But outside of our space-time, from what would be a fourth-dimensional perspective, time wouldn't exist. And from that vantage, could we attain it? Mr. McConaughey, Alma doesn't want to smoke any more cigarettes. Our space-time would look flattened, like a... Cookie! ...matter in a superposition, every place it ever occupied. Our sentience just cycling through our lives, like carts on a track. See, everything outside our dimension, that's... Cookie! ...eternity. Eternity looking down on us. Now, to us, it's a sphere. But to them, it's a circle. Elmo thinks it was a bad idea to go with HBO. Maybe they'll discuss it on the nose. We should eat cookies during nose. And now, starring opposite Big Bird... On Birdwalk Empire, Cookie Macking Cookie. Yes, uh, that's our uh, reflection on the fact. We'll be talking about this later today, but in fact, as you may know, Sesame Street and HBO have gone into a partnership. Uh, not that there are nervous heart flutterings elsewhere in the building. No, of course not. But in fact, you'll be getting your Sesame Street fresh from HBO, not from PBS. Yes, it's a little bit worrisome around here. Well, we have a lot of firepower here on the nose today. Uh, let me introduce them. Uh, Rand Richards Cooper, writer, uh, and critic, bon vivant, and many other things as well. Uh, Rebecca Castellani, Scottish scholar, and how, how, well, how do I describe you now? You're newly returned from Scotland. Newly minted masters, you, you, Oh, you, you, you're a newly minted almost master. <laughs> almost masters. Of literature, right? Literature? Yes. All right. Very uh, legit. <laughs> and uh, America's Greatest Living Film Critic, uh, David Edelstein, a film critic for Fresh Air with Terry Gross, CBS Sunday morning and New York Magazine, uh, making his debut on the nose. A lifelong ambition for you, right? To finally get on the nose. Why is it the nose again and not like the week in review or something? I don't know. We just, you know, think Google, I think. You know, that's, that's, what I, that's how I always answer it anyway. All right. We're going to begin. Well, I'll tell you that later in the show, we will be talking about this sort of uh, um, somewhat devil's bargain between HBO and Sesame Street. Uh, we'll also be talking uh, about recent evidence that suggests that perhaps Shakespeare uh, smoked pot. Um, and does that mean anything? Should we even care? But first, we're going to look at the kind of visceral nature uh, of political discourse here in August of 2015. Um, and we're going to st- start with a particular word, although it's going to sort of 
I think, uh, fold out uh, into other areas. But we're going to talk about a word that, that the mainstream media kind of detected this week. The New York Times had a story on it, as did a lot of other news outlets. It's kind of an ugly sounding word. <laughs> I have to be very careful how I even say it. It's cuxervative. Uh, and so the New York Times uh, talked about attacks being made from the far right on uh, Rubio and Bush, two of the candidates. Uh, he said they said the, those attacks were, quote, adorned with a cryptic hashtag bearing a new word, conservative. The uh, phrase has caught on among a segment of disaffected Republicans, some of whom hold white nationalist ideologies and who feel many of the party's presidential candidates are not conservative enough. And they are frustrated by the willingness of Republicans in general to compromise on a variety of, a variety of issues like spending or the Confederate battle flag, or they accuse them of being, holden, of being beholden to their donors. Uh, Joan Walsh, writing in Salon, explains – uh, that the word apparently comes from a kind of pornography known as cuck, in which a white husband, either in shame or lust, watches his wife be taken by a black man. Um, and one commentator, one Republican commentator said, a cuckservative is therefore a race traitor. Uh, Joan Walsh concludes, the swaggering common sense racism, she has obviously in quotes, com common sense racism of Donald Trump is, a, is touching something deep in the conservative psyche that's kind of summed up by this word. Uh, as I was cruising the alt-right uh, Twitter, Twitterverse today, I found a lot of stuff about cuckservative. Uh, a typical tweet, uh, this guy writes, we teach our boys there is no right or wrong and nothing worth fighting for. And now they're infantilized cucks. So, um, <laughs> uh, so uh, being careful how you pronounce it, uh, we're going to talk about this. And if uh, you have your own comments, 860-275-7266. So, Rebecca, my first question is, should we be amused by this or freaked out by it? I started out amused. And then the more I was reading the tweets of these people, the more I started to get freaked out. Oh, I absolutely agree. I started off very amused, especially with the amalgamation of the word, um, talking about the bard later, the word cuckold reaching far back into the annals of history and it's being revitalized for this purpose. But the more I uh, peeked around in Twitter, the more ominous it really became. It seems that a lot of people are really taking this seriously. Um, I thought really it was just kind of farcical for a while until I started reading some of these accounts that seemed deadpan, dead serious. Even uh, people who are no longer alive are getting smeared in this way. Uh, the National Review posted a piece uh, that said Don the headline was Donald Trump is an affront to anyone devoted to William F. Buckley's legacy. That was immediately retweeted by something called the reactionary tree <laughs> uh, who wrote Buckley was a cuckservative, totally dedicated to purging any remotely conservative thought from the right. So, Rand, uh, well, I'll let you react to this any way that you want to. But uh, it's always interesting when you see a coinage like this. And it's a coinage, as Rebecca says, it's kind of a reach. The word cuckold, you know, is, is not a word that people sling around commonly. I have to say, maybe I'm, I'm just particularly addled today, but I still actually don't quite understand. It, it is a word that is being used by the extreme yes, right? Yes, by the extreme right to dismiss uh, uh, Republicans closer to the center. They are the conservatives. And they are, cuckold, they are cuckolds. They, they have yeah. horns on their head, as right. Shakespeare would okay. say. Okay. So I, I certainly just as, as, uh, as, as these um, coinages go, it's, it's pretty confusing. It's not immediately obvious what it means. So let's say you've got rhinos, Republicans in name only. That's, that's a graceful coinage or, or acronym, I suppose, because A – you know, it, it connotes a creature that's that's like an elephant, so it's sort of zoologically apt. It sets up in your mind very quickly. This thing, A, 
you know, it sounds like a, a, a pornographic spoonerism. Mm. Um, and, and, and so you immediately start to sort of untangle the schooner, spoonerism and you get to, oh, well, this has to do with, with, a certain, with a certain act. We can't even – it's cuckolded, yes, but there's something else going on yeah. lexically in the word that – and we all know what that is. It's one of the things we can't mention on NPR. So then every time you try to take it apart, you, you sort of get into these little illicit byways of kind of political irrelevance – so I find it distracting, weird, um, and uh, I, I guess I guess funny. But well, well, David, as I was reading about it more and more, I mean, first of all, it, it clearly does mean something similar to what Rhino means, and it also is a way of criticizing a kind of political correctness that this group doesn't like very much. They like Donald Trump. They like the way that he talks. And in a way, their their critique is similar to a critique that uh, maybe we'll sort of allude to in this conversation that sometimes comes from the left towards the trigger warning oriented college campuses, that the blood and life is being drained out of language and discourse. You can't say what you want to say anymore without thinking you're going to get in trouble. Of course, the people using conservative want to say often racist things or they want to be able to make fun of women's menstrual cycles, uh, and, and they feel as though they can't. Colin, here, here's what I don't understand. Um, this might be a word that we've never heard before, but these people have been around forever. I mean, this is not – they are not saying anything that we haven't heard since the Turner Diaries or, or long before that. And the, the question is whether or not uh, social media has made it possible for them to attract more followers. So what percentage of – of the the voting public or the or the po- or the, or the Republican uh, uh, segment, uh, you know, do they represent? Can they attract followers? And maybe most important, are they all armed? Um, because you know, these uh, I, I mean, I hate to to paint them with a broad brush, but these are the people who are likely to resort to physical threats and to actually have the means to carry them out. Well, and I think one thing that's a little bit unusual is they really do feel as though they've found a hero in Donald Trump. I mean, this, they are throwing their arms around this guy, this guy who, as we know, has donated to Hillary Clinton and Clinton <laughs> campaigns in the past, this guy who really isn't ideologically pure by any means. Uh, but, Rebecca, this this like this, even the coinage conservative, it's so visceral. It's the kind of language that he likes to use too. It's the kind of language that he gets in trouble for using. I mean, the whole fight between him and Megyn Kelly began with her question at the debate about whether someone who calls women, quote, fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals, unquote, has the temperament to be elected president. That that part of him that's so easily dismissed by the rest of us is something they actually kind of like. He's also such a farce of a figure. I mean, he's an actor in my mind more so than anything else. His response, only Rosie O'Donnell, was met with uproarious laughter in the debate. So it completely took the wind out of what was a very serious allegation of sexism. And that never really got addressed again because he made a big joke out of it. So I have a hard time, I mean, as most people do, taking him seriously. But the fact that he's got this wave of support from these radical right-wing conservatives is just rather mind-boggling to me because he's clearly not taking it seriously. And he was the first in the debate to say that he would consider running as a third party if he didn't get the nom. What were you going to say? Well, first of all, there's sort of a meta 
lexical sort of shimmery kind of forbodenness to this word. When you're a kid of, I recall, a certain age, you can scan a page and just see all the number of times that the letters CK come together <laughs> because you're, you're hopeful of seeing the F word in print. Now, you when watched you, a lot of Beavis and Butthead. There you go. So when, when you have C with a vowel followed by CK and then an S, we, we all know what's kind of shimmering in the background. Now, if the, if the charge that this hashtag uh, uh, gives off and its relation to Trump is that, well, Trump is the candidate who's going to get up there and say the rude, crude things that no one else will say, the popularity of that act re- reflects and rests on a certain basic illogical problem that voters are expressing in their fondness for him. Voters uh, say, you know what, we're tired of being snowed by politicians who sort of glibly evade things by giving you sort of smooth policy statements that are never true and they're lying. Well, therefore, it's, it's, it might seem logical to say if we have someone who is not smooth talking, who is not mannerly, who doesn't obey the rules, well, then he's telling you the truth and he's honest. So, so there's just a sort of logical you know I, fallacy to him. I, I totally agree with what you're saying, but I think I do I, – I heard a, uh, a political writer, um, I forget who, on the radio the other day. And he explained it very simply and straightforwardly. Americans love reality TV, and Trump has brought the reality TV aesthetic into the political arena. I mean, some some of us could say, well, there was a little bit of that in Herman Cain and um, and Michelle Bachman and 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 all the the weird stuff going on um, four years ago. But there's never been literally a reality TV figure carrying on. As if you know there are there are no international consequences to the to the things that pop out of his mouth. Right, and that's why I, for me, what's interesting in our or any citizen's response to the phenomenon of Trump is you sort of have to do one of two things. You either have to start you know moaning and groaning the way George Will did in his column today about how Trump represents the coarsening of the American <laughs> political discipline. Well, of course that's true, but maybe the other thing is go in the other direction and they say, you know what, run, let's run all the way with it right to the Oval Office. Then we'll have a reality TV show with Trump in the Oval Office. It'll be called you know Trump this or you know or or, or whatever. I'd so much rather have a beer with Donald Trump than with George <laughs> Will. But you know, Rebecca. I, I kind of held the, the, the theory that they are expounding here for uh, for quite a while, that this was sort of a summer folly. You know, it's, it's, this, it's the summer of an off year. We're not even really in an election year. Nobody who's embracing Trump right now has to take it seriously or has to live with it uh, for very long. Although there was a Washington Post piece this week that talked about his organization in Iowa where he really has a real campaign organization, the kind that you put in there if you expect to be able to win the Iowa caucus. But even setting that aside, I, I was with them that this is a reality show. This is a guy who's famous on prime time. Uh, that means he's got name recognition at a time when people really don't know who John Kasich is, you know, uh, or whether it's Kasich or Kasich. I can never remember. But, you know, the stuff that I think you and I looked at today, it scared me a little bit. And I realized, wow, there, there may be a vaster marketplace for that, as David said, almost Turner Diaries type rhetoric. But but the, in a way that maybe because you can do it on Twitter and you can kind of you know do a nice gleaming digital presentation of it on, on your Twitter feed that kind of it makes it seem a little little less ratty and dusty and semi legitimized, particularly by, by people who have pretty good senses of humor in what they're doing. No, I completely agree. I think that. I mean, the last election, social media was involved, but it's, I mean, it's an exponential growth with social media. 
And I think to have someone who's using a comedian's rhetoric as opposed to the typical politician speak is appealing to a lot of people who are looking at 17 Republican candidates and can't tell half of them apart. And here's Donald Trump, who everyone recognizes, and he's someone that people, oh, I know that guy. And his approval rating or his, his polls are shockingly high right now. So there are people that are legitimately buying into this. So I, too, at first thought, oh, he's just doing this because people have kind of, you know, The Apprentice wasn't as popular as it was five years ago. People have kind of forgotten Donald Trump's name. He's trying to get some free attention here. But I think it's really turned into a legitimate threat for well, the— I, I, I don't know if it's a legitimate—I mean, in the long term, if it's a legitimate threat. These guys, the, the guys who throw around conservative like— like a bomb thrower right now because because it makes them feel more powerful. He is a stand-in for them. He, his crudeness, it, that's, that's their language. But at a certain point, they're going to realize that there is a, there is a roof to Trump, Trump's support. There, I mean, there is no way that this guy is going to get the Latino vote. There's no way that he's going to cross over at all to, the, to, to most of the undecideds. I mean, he, he can't win in a general in a general election they're going to have to realize that i don't know who among those candidates could win in a general election even against a weak candidate like Hillary Clinton. But, you know, in reading the rhetoric of these people who use these terms like conservative, I really did. My one aperçu from all of this of the day is that um, there are echoes of what we hear from certain parts of the left, too. Uh, a bunch of some of us here read the cover story of The Atlantic this week uh, in which Jonathan Haidt and somebody else who isn't Jonathan Haidt uh, did a pretty familiar essay about sort of the wor- world of academia and trigger warnings. There's a companion piece by Caitlin Flanagan about how comedians won't play college campuses anymore because college students have no sense of humor. They can't take a joke. Uh, they, they can't stand joking about anything. Professors have to program everything that they're doing with the notion that uh, students expect trigger warnings. You might not even be able to teach a class on rape law and say the word rape, and you might not even be able to use the word violate because it's too much like rape. I mean, there are just all these kind of things that seem insane. And, and to some of us reading that piece, I think we think, well, yes, that, that is a gilding of the language. That's a draining of the blood out of our our thought processes. But that's, you know, reading the stuff, Rebecca and I both, I think, read some similar tweets that said basically the same thing. Like, why can't Trump say what he wants to say? Obviously, they're talking about a different kind of material, but the attitude of the critique was very similar. Why, why can't we say these things? Why can't, who says we can't use words like that? Well, you know, if, if Trump's, um, if, if a central plank of his political philosophy, such as it is, is that political correctness is killing America, and that's what he says, then arguably he represents the most coherent, consistent, and passionate enactment of his own political philosophy of any, of any uh, candidate, you know, who's out there. But the paradoxes that, that this proposes um, are really, uh, and they're really pretty, pretty fascinating. Um, Here's a guy who, if you listen to his discussion of the political process and his involvement of it, couldn't be more on the face of it corrupt. He says, I, I, just, I buy politicians. Uh, that, that's what I do. I bought all of them. Um, and yet the American electorate, because we, we have such an interestingly ambivalent attitude toward wealth and toward wealthy candidates, we think, uh-huh, he's, in, he's so corrupt 
that he's incorruptible. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, candidates who he, he can't be bought. But at least he's being honest about it, which he, is more than we can say. He can't be bought. Why not? Well, because he buys everyone else. Um, and, and so there's this way that even in all of his most egregious offenses, he's immunized by those offenses. Meanwhile, the networks are in a terrible bind because this is so entertaining. And so it's, in a way, it's the apotheosis of American politics sold as entertainment. And, and, and even the networks are gnashing their teeth at it, but they can't – they're in a box that they can't get out of. I totally agree with David that there's, there's – I don't know what the number is, but there's an upper limit on how many actual votes this guy could ever get. I, I would bet anything I have that he has no chance of becoming president of the United States. But, of course, you know, people like in 1932 in Germany said that about yeah. a certain pompous dork that everyone thought would be, remain marginal. But I, I would like to know what, what political consultants at, who have spent uh, hundreds of years honing a certain kind of political language um, – who do, you know? Who who train their candidates not to respond to criticism by saying you're a loser or <laughs> you know you've got blood coming out of your wherever? I mean, who really work very hard to to sand off those edges and to make them say as little as possible and at great length as possible um, with a, with 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 um, audience tested with group tested lines in there. The, you know that are going to appeal to the base co- always coded you know is is that science completely wrong i mean is you know do can somebody who does not have the language of a traditional politician you know really catch on in america or is he or is he going to get his come up in somewhere along the line because we just can't follow him that far? Well, the person, of course, who raised the thing that you're talking about right now to the art or science that it is now grew up just a few Frank miles, Luntz. a Frank few miles Luntz. from where we're sitting right here, Frank Luntz, and so he's the guy who really does, you know, who's really supposedly perfected uh, political language. Let's call the little bastard up now and see if he'll <laughs> well, see if he'll be incorporating some yeah. of this. Well, in fact, Trump, you know, he came up in one of Trump's interviews, and Trump kind of channeling Andre the Giant specifically <laughs> rejected him. He said, oh, he said, oh, you're talking about Frank Luntz. He's a dunce. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I so, should remember that. So this battle has already been joined. You know, I mean, specifically, if you're asking, does Trump represent the overthrow- overthrowing of it? I mean, it's not even an implied overthrowal. It's, you know, he said, uh, I want nothing to do with that kind of thinking. Um, let me just, uh, we do have some Trump supporters uh, on uh, on my, my phone, and it might be interesting to talk. Yes, Rand is very interested in talking to a Trump supporter. Here's John in Farmington. We also have Jesse in Simsbury. Hi, John. Hi, uh, I'm Donald Trump. I'll tell you, I'm I'm a, a middle class white, you know, working guy. I go to work every day in my 40s, and I'll tell you, I'm I feel I represent your average white guy. And to tell you the truth, I'm tired of being scolded. I'm tired of women telling me what I do wrong, what I don't get, what I get that they don't get. I'm tired of black people telling me what happens when a police officer pulls me over. White guilt, white privilege, I don't get this, I don't get that. That's what your average guy is sick of. And, you know, black lives matter, in my opinion, black lives, meh. No, you're, you're, now you're doing an impersonation of a Trump supporter. Yeah, yeah no, you he, even, he, you even sound like you have yeah, addiction. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he took it too far. He was, he, I think that uh, he had me convinced right up until the end. Um, <laughs> you think he's, a, you think he's a Democrat troll? Uh, yeah, he's, I think he's, he's something he's like that. He's, yeah, us. he's that's a fake Trump supporter. Okay. All right, let's try Jesse and see if we can get a real one. Hi, Jesse. Hi. 
Um, I am a registered Democrat. Um, I do not support Hillary Clinton. Trump, um, having worked in Wall Street, I kind of know um, what kind of person Trump is. Um, he comes off as somewhat bombastic and crazy, but when he gets down to business, he is none of those things. I think, um, obviously, as a, you know, if he were to win an election, he would not behave this way once he got into office. Um, I do think that he is a very, very intelligent person. He has a lot of people that have been working with him for you know, decades. And I do think that the women in his life are very, um, you know, praised. He, he does not, I, I think it's a lot of showmanship, but, you know, if you think about all the industrialists, like the Vanderbilts and, the, you know, the J.P. Morgans, you know, those big personalities who helped really build this country, um, you know, he... He's very appealing. He, he is, he's very appealing. When I look at all the Republican candidates and the Democratic candidates that are out there, he's the only one to me that has actually, you know, a, a kind of common sense, you know, let's get it done approach. And I think, you know, everyone's right, well, tired I, of nothingness. I'm going to just stop you there because we're running out of time, but also. So there's a real... I mean, like, I believe her, you know. The other guy was just, he was, he was like, he was too perfect, right? I mean, he just said all the things. Uh, he was just way too perfect. He's like from some improv group or something. Um, we hope. Yeah. But, I mean, there, I don't know. There's, uh, what I hear a little bit, I mean, not exactly in what Jesse's saying, but there's a little bit, uh, Rebecca, of one of your friends uh, who's hooking up with some guy who's got some obvious problems and, and saying to you, I can change him. Um, there's this kind of sense that, oh, like the person you're meeting right now, that's not the real person. He's going to grow. I'm going to nurture him. You know, the comparison she makes between 19th century uh, uh, magnets and their, and their, and their role in, in modern America, you know, the Andrew Carnegie, uh, Henry Ford, uh, reactionary as some of their politics were, they were personally sort of monsters of rectitude and solemnity and, uh, and it, it is it is the just sort of um, rampantly frivolous uh, and uh, nature and sort of jackass like nature of 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 Trump as a public figure the clownishness that uh, it's very interesting to see that that is coming across as as a big selling point for him. We've even dumbed down tycoons. Yeah, well, see, see, that's drama. I mean, that's not reality television. That is soap opera. Mm. The guy who begins. Uh, <laughs> who comes on as, as in a bit part as as a rapist? Who suddenly letters come in from the female fans saying he's kind of <laughs> good, and we really like him. And then he he gradually becomes sensitized, and he apologizes to the woman, and he he grows, and all of a sudden his fan base grows, and and it's this is this very appealing appealing idea of humanizing a thug, because he because he really does. You know, uh, come he he is in some ways a kind of macho ideal, even with that hair. And he already is a celebrity. And one of the suspicions anyone's going to have when you see sixteen Republicans up there is that is that most of them want to pull a, a, 
Huckabee. They want to get some you know, personal brand buffing and maybe turn it into a job and money. Trump already has that. Uh, again, so again, by virtue of being you know, this popular clownish celebrity, he sort of puts himself above reproach. Before we run out of time, we've got to take a break, so we'll have time for Sesame Street, HBO, Shakespeare, and Weed. All right. Well, uh, my son uh, growing up was able to watch Sesame Street uh, on uh, on PBS, and so were the uh, daughters uh, of David Edelstein. And I think uh, Larkin uh, Rand's daughter has probably outgrown Sesame Street now, um, so she's in the clear. But the little children that Rebecca Castellani brings into this world, they won't find Sesame Street. At least they won't find brand new, fresh episodes of fresh uh, Sesame Street on their local public television station. They will have to go to HBO, and Rebecca will have to pay whatever that costs. Uh, so that they can keep up with the exploits of Elmo and Big Bird because, in fact, uh, in order sort of to to beef up their own financial picture, Sesame Street has entered into an unusual partnership with HBO in which their brand new episodes will debut initially uh, on HBO and then after nine months of of exclusively appearing on HBO, the shows will drop down to PBS where you can see them for free and where they've lived for the last 45 years. So, uh, David Edelstein, you spent a lot of time looking at sort of delivery models for entertainment. This seems as though it's not an isolated incident that, you know, as, as, cre- as content creators look for ways to monetize what they do, some of the old models don't seem to work that well anymore. Well, I, don't, I, I didn't realize that they were going to drop down after nine months. I mean, Sesame Street is not exactly what you call water cooler television. Um, I'm not sure that a nine-month lag is going to make that much of a difference to the kids who watch Sesame Street. Maybe I, maybe I don't know. Maybe in fact they do go on, go to Alt Sesame Street, and you know, and do fan fiction about you know, uh, you know. I mean, Elmo's latest you know boy toy. But I, I, I so I, I have no idea. I, I have. I don't even precisely know at this point where HBO gets its revenue because now there there's so much on demand and it's so and much of it is filtered through the the cable companies who who actually deliver um although I guess now there's HBO to go and I don't know how much the cost of HBO compares to say getting a slate of a thousand channels so I'm I'm actually not that sure of where their revenue stream is right now so, Rebecca, it does, uh, we do have Tim Winter, president of the Parents Television Council, saying uh, kids are getting squeezed in the middle in order to watch original episodes of the most iconic children's program in television history. Parents are now forced to fork over about $180 a year and subscribe to the most sexually explicit, most graphically violent television network in America. I can't imagine a greater juxtaposition in, uh, juxtaposition in television than this. So you're, you know, obviously perhaps years away from your child-rearing uh, time, but not that far away from your Sesame Street. You're probably about halfway between yeah. the two of the two of them. I just e- bother you at all? Oh, it bothers me immensely. I couldn't help but think this is going to be the new spoiler alert on Playgrounds. Like, oh, don't talk about that Sesame Street <laughs> episode. I haven't seen it yet. Or whether people are going to start illegally downloading Sesame Street. I mean, little kids on their iPads with Torrent and other burning devices. Uh, yeah, I find it very disturbing. I think, you know... Fine to put content like Game of Thrones, it's violent, and you choose, you know, for that sort of cinemagraphic experience to buy such a thing. But for Sesame Street, which is about as iconic a children's program as exists, to 
make it so elitist. I mean, it really is pretty shocking to me that Sesame Street and PBS would agree to align themselves with HBO. You know, well, go ahead. What were you going to say? Or, or I can give you a prompt. You want a prompt? Yeah, well, I mean, there's something wildly. I mean, first of all, we should say that some of the reality of this is this arrangement will allow Sesame Street to double the number of original episodes they make per year. Now, they they don't their funding sources are not what they used to be. They used to depend a lot on um, DVDs, uh, which aren't as popular anymore. I think they only got 10 to 15 percent of their revenue from PBS, and then like the rest came from other places that don't seem to be working that well anymore. On the other hand, there's always been something so wildly small d democratic about Sesame Street, right? Like, you know, for those of us who grew up in a slightly different era, Sesame Street, you suddenly started to see America the way it really looks, you know, like all kinds of people. I mean, not just the puppets, but the people were different colors too. And and there's that kind of sense that, well, it's called Sesame Street, you know, that it it sort of came from the general ranks of, of America. And so for it to be a gated community at all is a little bit disturbing. Well, I, I agree with David um, when he says really the important thing here is not the timeliness of, of an episode, but the fact that it is still going to be available on PBS. I'm absolutely sure that 99% of the kids who watch Sesame Street don't care really what the, the, the direct provenance of, of, of the show is. I, was, I have a nine-year-old daughter, and I will say that we used for, for many years PBS as a kind of haven or, 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 or oasis from her, for her, a place where she could have some exposure to television, good shows, and I watched some of them too, you know, like. Wild Kratz, I love that show, um, where, where she could watch these shows without advertisers getting their claws into her and without her at a very early age sort of learning that structure that public culture uh, – that, that culture is going to be delivered to her you know, with that price tag. Now, um, I, I will say – a, there's a cognitive dissonance clearly that goes along with juxtaposing Sesame Street with the Sopranos or Boardwalk Empire or any of these other uh, violent and very well-written bloodfests on HBO. I'm not sure how it will work if kids are watching Sesame Street and see commercials for those. That would be a concern if I were a parent. But they, They're not going to do that, believe yeah. me. That would, be, <laughs> that would end the experiment a, right in, there. In, in a broader sense – in a broader cultural political sense, Sesame Street is uh, 50 years old uh, next year. And its founding is in some ways almost coterminous with the creation of public uh, broadcasting. And um, in a way, this sort of represents uh, perhaps a, a sad kind of privatization. I mean, success sells. And, you know, if like Amtrak were an incredibly successful uh, uh, form of transportation. It probably would be owned by, like, you know, Southwest Airlines. I mean, really, when I was thinking about this, the only case of something that was very viable and successful that I know of in the commercial world that then went in the other direction was the Colin McEnroe show. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, he used to be out there selling himself via ads every 30 seconds, was wildly successful at it, and now he's a, a, he's a government-promoted entity. But, you know, basically this, this show... As long as it's if, – if they're going to create more episodes this way and kids are still going to be able to watch them in, on, on PBS, I, I don't see it as But a I guess you're thing. saying this is really about public funding then. This is really about the, the larger issue is the drying up of public funding. Cor- correct. Well, see, I don't, I don't think it is. First of all, public funding of public broadcasting is wildly over – this show gets no public funding whatsoever. This station gets – essentially no public funding whatsoever. The only thing we do is buy some programming, national programming that sometimes is publicly funded or has at least funded a little bit out of the corporation. And the nose guests give money every time. David doesn't know that yet. That's right, yeah. yeah. It's like 20 bucks at the end of this. But um, so to me, it's not that. To me, I mean, if you read about what's happened to Sesame Street, 
that's not what happened to them. What happened to them was they were making a lot of their money from licensing and delivery and uh, DVD uh, rentals and purchases and stuff like that. And just because so much stuff is streamable and downloadable and just available in other ways, um, the, that revenue stream is is drying up for them. And I, I do think that that's a challenge across the board in entertainment right now, is that the, the thing you thought you could make a lot of money on, whatever it was, the first weekend of ticket sales to a movie or something, it's just a much more problematic than it well, used this, to be. This, I mean, this is a larger question because the, when the market dropped out of the DVD, when the DVD market, the bottom fell out, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the Hollywood's revenue stream shifted, and one reason we're seeing so many more three, you know, three D movies that don't need to be three D, and superhero movies, and quote unquote franchises, is that uh, eventually, as much as eighty percent of the entertainment market is going to be in China and and other parts of Asia, and and it's that group that's dictating more and more of what we see. So. I guess maybe in some way we should be thankful to HBO for kind of stepping in and and rescuing and uh, the show and maybe and who knows maybe even revitalizing it. I, I'm not. I understand what you're saying, but I still think a, a nine month lag. I, I mean, look, people are still listening to car talk. Right. I mean, they're talking about you know some you know eighty four. Know he's dead. Yeah. So and they're talking about some eighty four car that hasn't been made for that that hasn't even been on the streets for mm. twenty years. I actually think you're right. I think it's going to be good for um, Sesame Street in certain ways that they're probably going to get an infusion of creativity. Um, I will say that. Uh, the guy who's the head of the sort of Sesame Street company right now, I forget what it's called, is a guy named Jeff Dunn, who I went to high school with. He's from. He's also from West Hartford, same place as Frank Luntz. See, everybody's from West Hartford. It's the Tigris and Euphrates. You're from West Hartford. We're all from West Hartford. So um, uh, we, well, we're going to move on here, and uh, we're going to put Rebecca's uh, master's in literature to some work here. Um, <laughs> this turns out to be kind of maybe not as new a story as we thought it was initially. It's been kicked around a couple of other times in the past. But uh, a guy, a researcher, interestingly named Thackeray. I don't know whether, whether we should uh, attach any importance <laughs> to it. But a researcher whose name is Thackeray from South Africa, of all places, um, has uncovered some evidence at sort of broken pipes and stuff like that in, in, uh, in the ground, uh, suggesting that and with traces of both cocaine and marijuana. So it's um, not a lock. But uh, media outlets are getting very excited about the whole idea anyway that um, it's possible that Shakespeare uh, drew his inspiration from some of these other places. Thackeray and his team, um, I was looking for it here on my document, analyzed 24 pipe fragments from uh, in and around Stratford-upon-Avon, including several from Shakespeare's birthplace and the home he owned later in his life at New Place. The test found strong evidence for the use of nicotine and more surprisingly cocaine. Evidence for marijuana was less substantive, but uh, one study said that unequivocal evidence for cannabis uh, has not been obtained, but there, uh, there, the researchers did detect – well, it gets very complicated and chemical. And there, but there did, did seem to be cannabinoids in some of those old samples. So uh, are we surprised? Not surprised? Uh, not surprised. Yeah. Why are we not surprised? <laughs> Have you read The Winter's Tale <laughs> um, or Midsummer Night's Dream or Macbeth or I can go on? Um, Don't say that name. <laughs> That's right. This, you should be of, of all people. You should be calling it the Scottish play. Yes, just got back from I'm Scotland. sorry. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be that surprised by that. It would have taken a lot of effort, however, to get it there. I don't think there was any evidence that was being grown, um, but I think I think it was Drake that first brought nicotine um, to not, England. Not the rapper. No, no about that. I wish. Yeah. Um, 
So I'm not sure. I mean, I think that one of the things I read that was that Sonnet 76 had an allusion to weed. And I did a – because it says, and keep invention in a noted weed. So I did some etymological research and that's kind of a debunked argument because the term weed wasn't really – No, they wouldn't be calling it that. No, that that became something that was used in the 1930s. So I think that people are definitely trying to reach here. Um, The articles alone that are floating around the internet right now are pretty priceless. People making things like Billy Bong rips and all sorts of – it's worth looking around. But uh, I think that people are just kind of excited by the idea more so that there's really much validity. I don't know that whatever whatever we're talking about would have been that potent necessarily. I mean, no. if you go out there and buy buy you know marijuana right now, it will blow the top of your head off. But uh, <laughs> compared to the stuff I was smoking every day in college, uh, should I have said that? Um, but um, and you know, I I have a feeling you know civilizations have always you know chewed coca leaves and you know, experimented with cocaine in some form before the science of, of being able to distill it and to concentrate it. I mean, it's the same reason people... Uh, it could be. It could have the potency of coffee, um, the cocaine that he was chewing. It could just, you know, or, or, or no-dose or something, or Sudafed. I mean, it, it, there's no reason to believe that he was in a uh, Keatsian uh, altered state or a... Or a uh, opi- you know, sitting in some Coleridge, opium yeah. den. Yeah. Or Coleridge. The jury's actually kind of a little bit out on how much opium uh, Keats actually used. But, um, but I mean, everybody seemed to use something. And, yeah, Edison uh, was doing that Vin Mariani stuff, the coca leaves uh, soaking in wine, uh, and it seemed to inspire him to I mean, all kinds of things. far more interesting stuff about alcohol in, in right. Shakespeare, the whole, the whole uh, Porter speech in... Uh, the Scottish play about how it makes them and it mars them, it, you know, increases the desire but, you know, cuts the function or <laughs> cuts yeah. the ability. I mean, there's some, there's some, there's some great stuff about sack and, and, you know, one, one uh, uh, alcoholic beverage or another. All right, Rand, you get the final riff or spliff. Well, <laughs> you know, Shakespeare's achievement was so majestic and his artistic intelligence so Incomprehensible. Harold Bloom wrote about him essentially that he was he he may have been God. Um, Invented the human. He invented the human. That that in combination with the real paucity of any knowledge, uh, biographical knowledge, it creates um, uh, it almost begs for theories of explanation, of which there have been you know many. And he becomes a kind of bulletin board upon which we can tack our uh, speculations about artistic creativity, about his life. Was he gay? Was he actually uh, Sir Francis Bacon? Um, did he and even write the plays? Did he even write them? Was he Christopher Marlowe? Um, and, and so I think there will be never, there's never going to be an end to, to kind of crank pet theories about it. But I did, as I think I told you, some research. And I, I found out in light of, of this concept that there, a number of his best-known plays actually had original titles in draft form that perhaps you don't know of, but they do betray... In fact, that 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 uh, pot had a, a smoldering place in the okay, center of the so, Here we go. Let's so, um, roll. You know, as you like it was actually as you light it. <laughs> uh, we had, there was the well-known "Much Ado About Puffing," uh, the "Munchy Wives of Windsor." Uh, this is one of my favorites. The Hashpipe Merchant of Venice. He, he left out the fact about the hashpipe. See, I had the, the Merchant, merchant of, Venice. of Venice Beach. The Merchant <laughs> of Venice Beach. Ooh, no. the, uh, the comedy of, well, the comedy of errors was the comedy of reefers, but of um, he was ahead of his time. Uh, and then finally there was the two stoners of Verona. <laughs> and, uh, and there was one that, and the, the Midsummer Night's Bong. Of course. And he left one intact and, and titled, left its title for us, and it is called 
Measure for measure. measure. (laughs) All right. We have to take a break. We'll come back with endorsements after this. certainly explains the scene where Othello eats an entire three-quarter pound bag of Doritos. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and appeared in the intro with Lydia Brown. Our interns are Deborah Timms and Alex Dubin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Count Von Count. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making Merchant of Venice brownies, visit our website wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday's show, the scramble sweeps up the wreckage of the weekend. And now, back to calling. Uh, before we do endorsements, a special farewell to Deborah Timms. She's been a great uh, intern for us, and she actually did uh, produce for us uh, yesterday uh, the remarkable show about left-handedness. Um, far rose above my expectations. So it was a great show, and we've been uh, very happy to have her with us. So we wish her well in her future endeavors. All right, time for endorsements. Rand Cooper, you go first. First, uh, I want to extend um, a literary endorsement that I made a, f- a few months ago after we did the tournament of books. And you and I, Colin, both loved Evie e- Wilde's novel After uh, All the Birds Singing. She's an Anglo-Australian novelist. She has a, a prior book that I just read recently called After the Fire, A Small Still Voice. She has these terrible poetic titles. You can never remember them. Um, but the, the reason that – this will be interesting if you're the type of reader who would like to read two books in succession by a writer and see how she gets a lot better. Her theme is really the immanence of the past, how, it, how we have to reckon with our personal pasts and how they shape us and haunt us. And her first book, After the Fire, A Still Small Voice – did it pretty well. And then her second book does it perfectly. So, you know, some writers do get better. They don't just, you know, get worse. Uh, And uh, I'd recommend that. The second thing, um, there's a spot on the highway between Bridgeport and Fairfield. And from it, you can look down below into this kind of wasteland on the on the town line between the two towns. And you can see the spot where Gustav Whitehead, uh, a German immigrant who became, was named Weisskopf, who became uh, a Connecticut citizen, perhaps arguably created American aviation before the White Brothers. The state has been involved in a pissing match with North Carolina about this. Google Gustav Whitehead. You can find directions to this spot, and I find it like a historically eerie and enticing thing to just look down there and imagine this guy once you've read a little bit, a, a little bit of his story. And then you can go out and advocate for Connecticut's right to install itself as the, the, the forebearer of so modern aviation. So much easier aviation. to get to than Kitty Hawk, too. Right. It is. I, I do want to say that David McCullough, the great historian who's just written a biography of the Wright brothers, spits on the Whitehead claim <laughs> in a very sort of pig-headed and kind of obnoxious way. And then when <laughs> given an opportunity to reconsider that, uh, does it again. Well, so, David, no soup for you. Yeah, that's right. He's very uh, intractable about that. All right. Rebecca, what have you got? So riffing off our Shakespeare conversation, I have discovered a hysterical, oftentimes very poignant short web series. It's on Vimeo. It's also on HBO called High Maintenance. Um, It chronicles the life of a Manhattan drug dealer named The Guy and the different clientele he interacts with. It's hysterical, but also really can shock you with how moving it is. 
And I was just in the Newport Folk Festival a couple weeks ago and got the pleasure of hearing Taylor Goldsmith of Dawes and Jim Jones of my morning James uh, Jim Jones of my morning jacket perform. And that got me revisiting the new Basement Tapes, which came out in November and is really worth a listen if you haven't checked it out before. They took some of Bob Dylan's um, unrecorded music and created everything, and it's pretty fantastic. Yeah, there's a very good Showtime documentary of the process by which they did that under the supervision of T-Bone Burnett, along with Rihanna Giddens and Elvis Elvis Costello and and Marcus Mumford. Go ahead, David. Well, this white guy sounds particularly trumpily and pissy talking about Straight Out of Compton, which is (laughs) uh, actually a a pretty wonderful and, and rousing movie that no matter what you think of gangster rap, and I'm sure gangster rappers don't care what I think of it, uh, certainly makes every single element of it, uh, you know, um, it shows you where these things came from with remarkable clarity, uh, from the from the misogyny to the to the violence to the braggadocio. Um, it, it's a it, it's a very powerful movie. Um, the Man from Uncle is a movie that I was not looking forward to. It turns out to be really elegant and witty and restrained and everything that Guy Ritchie's movies usually aren't. And spatially, it's quite beautiful the way the way the stunts are done. I mean, it's like it's it won't exhilarate you, but it's just pure pleasure. Uh, Finally, I want to say that I've rediscovered an old novelist uh, who I want to recommend. Uh, he's a genre novelist, although he was a screenwriter. His name is Guy Endor. He was he wrote in the 30s and 40s, and uh, he wrote a very famous horror novel called The Werewolf of Paris, which is also which which turns out also be a, 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 about the great sort of bloodletting at the Commune in Paris, and and. Um, it's a great historical novel as well as a great horror novel as well as uh, uh, a noir I'm into now called uh, Methinks the Lady. And I think we know where that came from. Um, Guy Endor, E-N-D-O-R-E. Please check him out. He's wonderful. All right. So what you should do uh, this weekend is find your – if you're um, a, a, a white guy that the way David described, find your most urban black friend. Go see uh, Straight Outta Compton and then go see The End of the Tour, uh, which is the David Foster Wallace white guy movie. And that will kind of balance things out. My endorsements are going to kind of balance things out in a similar way. I have been listening almost obsessively to American Messiah by D'Angelo. D'Angelo is the black Brian Wilson. I mean you have to listen to this CD a lot. Like a lot, a lot, a lot to have that unfold. So that's one half of it. And then you can bring the music up, Wolfie. Uh, this uh, Two nights ago, I saw Lyle Lovett perform in Bridgeport. He has this incredible band he travels with. Where they're all solo artists. This is a guy named Luke Bulla. He's, he's a fiddle player. He's also an incredible singer. Um, he has his own separate career. Watch for this guy. He's handsome. He can sing and he can play the fiddle like nobody's business. Luke Bulla. Just remember that name. I don't know about you, but I expected Sesame Street to move to HBO or Cinemax. I mean, they're all naked all the time anyway.